Oh God, as we come before you and opening your scriptures, may we be ever mindful that we are on holy ground in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, have you ever had that experience in which you are both apprehensive about something and yet at the exact same time you are completely fascinated by that exact same thing? Storms do this for some people, especially those storms that have lots of lightning and thunder and tornadoes and such. You see that that large ominous cloud approaching and you know that you should get inside and yet you just cannot look away. For me, it's the ocean. Now, I like going to the beach as much as anybody, don't get me wrong. But if I'm honest, and Laura knows this, <laughs> the ocean terrifies me. The ocean really terrifies me. It's, it's powerful. It is unpredictable. It is deep. It is vast. There are sharks in the ocean. The ocean is very mysterious right? It's, it's very mysterious. You can't control it. You know, and it lets you know right away just how small you actually are. And yet, for all the same reasons, it completely fascinates me. Now, usually when I go to the beach, it takes me a little bit to warm up, but usually by the time I get to the ocean, then I can actually explore and have fun and find all kinds of great and wonderful shells and sand dollars and, and things like that. I could stay on the beach, but if I don't get in the water, I don't get to experience the vastness and all the mysteries that are in the ocean. In the early 20th century, there was a theologian, uh, his name was, he was a German theologian by the name of Rudolf Otto, and he made this great observation that God is a lot like this. In fact, he characterizes God by this Latin phrase, and it goes like this, the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, which translated into English goes like this, the mystery that both terrifies and fascinates. And by terrify, it means it creates this sense of, of awe. But even awe is always mixed with a bit of reverential fear. God terrifies us because God is so wholly other that when we experience him, we realize that we don't have the categories that we need to fully understand him or much less control him. And yet, God completely fascinates us. And it's that fascination that stirs something inside of us, and that if we let it, actually draws us closer to him. Now, I, I can't say that I actually recommend Rudolf Otto's writings, but I've always appreciated that particular description of the experience of God. And I think that it's a helpful lens through which we can understand a common theme that runs through all of our scriptures this morning. And that God is this mystery that both terrifies and fascinates. Today on our church calendar, it is Trinity Sunday. Every, now, every Sunday we always celebrate and we worship the God who is the Trinity, but every year we set aside one particular day in our church calendar to, to sharpen our focus on the idea of the Trinity and to really hone in on some aspect of this great mystery. I don't believe that there is anything in all of our theology that is more mysterious, more wholly other than the fact that God has revealed himself to be three persons in one Godhead. And it's this three in one, this trinity and unity that has both terrified and fascinated theologians and pastors and really all the Christian faithful down through the ages. 
See, the Trinity is a deep mystery. And it's a central mystery to our faith because it's central to who we believe the God that we worship to be. So as I was preparing for the sermon today and I was looking at the scriptures that the lectionary had appointed for us, I have to admit I was a little surprised because the passages that were appointed to us in the lectionary are not the normal go-to Trinitarian passages. Now, it's not that our passages have nothing to say about the Trinity. In fact, they're full of Trinitarian language. But however, as I was working with them, what stood out at me was, was not the references to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but what stood out at me was the posture that each of these passages calls for us to take. And it's that posture that I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at the posture. Now, now friends, we talk a lot about the Trinity here. We, we do. In fact, we actually started out the entire year with a very in-depth sermon series on the Trinity. If you remember, Dr. Grahams gave us three sermons looking at the Nicene Creed and how it gives definition to the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those sermons are on the website. They are deep. They are rich. And I encourage you to go back and listen to them. This morning, what I want us to focus on is the posture that I believe that we need to take as we approach the Holy Trinity. Because you see, too often we approach the Trinity with a wrong posture. And when we approach it with the wrong posture, then the Trinity gets turned into this kind of irrelevant intellectual exercise, or it becomes just some piece of doctrine that gets put up on a shelf and it gathers dust, and, and we might take it down and dust it off when we need to show our orthodox street cred, if you will. But this morning, what I want to show is that the Trinity is a deep mystery that both terrifies us and fascinates us, and it calls us into a receptive posture where God can communicate himself to us, not just to our minds, but also to our hearts and ultimately to our souls. So, what does this posture look like? Well, if you have your scriptures, we're going to be turning, we're going to be flipping around a lot, but we're going to start in Exodus chapter 3, which was the Old Testament passage that we looked at this morning. We start in Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to start with Moses. In Exodus 3, we find Moses shepherding his sheep. And by this point in his life, he has fled, he has fled uh, Egypt. He is living in the land of Midian. He has started a whole new life. And at this point, he is in charge of his father-in-law's flock. And that's what we find him doing, taking care of his responsibility, shepherding his sheep, he is tending to his responsibilities, doing everything that a shepherd is supposed to do, when all of a sudden, he sees a bush that's on fire. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, there's this common little phrase that describes his, uh, describes his reaction that is easily overlooked. In verse 2, it says simply, he looked. He looked. Now, I know that sounds like a common phrase, but it's a key phrase because what that particular phrase means is not just a passing glance. It's not like, oh, there's a bush on fire and keep going, right? It's, no, it's this idea that, that he actually stopped. He stopped what he was doing and he allowed this event to get his attention. He looked. You see, friends, so often we go through life 
and we don't stop long enough to pay attention to anything that's around us. We don't stop to see everything that's going on around us. We just, we're good at keeping our focus on what we have to do at that particular moment. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Don't hear me saying we need to shirk our responsibilities. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that a lot of times we get a tunnel vision in a very, very unhealthy way. And when we get that, we can miss the ways that God wants to speak to us. We can even miss the ways that God even shouts at us. Now, something like fire is certainly hard to miss. However, Moses could have taken a posture like we often do and say, you know what, I do not have time for this. I've got sheep I've got to feed. I've got water I've got to find for them. That bush is probably going to burn itself out anyways. I'm just going to keep on going. But Moses didn't do that. Moses stopped and he looked. And when he did, he saw that there was actually so much more going on. You see, it was only when he stopped and he looked that he saw that the bush was not being consumed. In verse 3, Moses says, he sees this and he says, I'm going to turn aside. I'm going to turn aside to see this great and amazing sight, why the bush is not being burned. You see, it wasn't the fire that fascinated him. It wasn't the fire that fascinated him. It was the fact that the fire was not destroying the bush that drew, that drew him in. And what I want to suggest to you is that had he not stopped and really paid attention and really looked, that he would have missed that particular nuance. And therefore, he would have missed God's voice at that moment. You see, in verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see... God called to him. Again, it was when Moses stopped long enough to be attentive, and then he turned away from the things that he was doing that was occupying his attention at the moment. It was in that moment that the Lord was able to speak to him. And it was in that moment that he was able to put himself in a posture to hear the Lord. So often we go along in our Christian lives just doing the normal things of life and when we do that, sometimes we wonder, why is God so far away from us? Why is God so far away from us? Sometimes that is the right question to ask. Lots of times, however, that's not the right question. The right question in most times is as simple as, have I stopped long enough to look for him, to be aware of what's going on? Have I stopped long enough to listen to him? Or have I just simply been overly focused on all that is immediately in front of me? Now, again, yes, we have responsibilities, and sometimes there are those times in our lives when, when our responsibilities are fuller than others. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the sheer busyness of life, the idea of always adding another thing to the calendar and adding another thing and adding another thing and adding another thing and then justifying it under some type of banner of like responsibility or something like that. Friends, when we let the busyness of life and the activity of life set the agenda for our lives, we miss out because we don't let ourselves become fascinated or even curious by things that are out of the ordinary. In fact, things like fascination and, and curiosity become really seen as distractions because in those times, they're not pragmatic enough for us to give our time to. But Moses, however 
Moses stopped and he looked and he turns aside. And when he does that, that's when he realizes that he is on holy ground and in the very presence of God, which makes him both fearful, as it says in verse 6, and yet fascinated, and he's now in a posture where God can speak to him. There's another example of this posture that I want to suggest for us today, and that's found in our gospel reading. So if you will turn with me to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we find a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says this to Jesus. He says, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus, like Moses, had seen something out of the ordinary and it intrigued him. And in this case, it's the signs that Jesus was doing. The immediate reference is the sign of Jesus cleansing the temple, which comes at the end of chapter 2. But Nicodemus sees Jesus doing these things, and he's really observant, I think, in a way that the other Pharisees are not. See, Pharisees, they're the Jewish leaders, right? They were zealous for the law. They were zealous for ritual purity. They were zealous for covenant faithfulness. And in and of themselves, those aren't bad things. The problem is, is that their zealousness had turned into legalism, which blinded them with a, a misplaced certainty. And another word for misplaced certainty is pride. You see, they had thought that they had it all figured out. They thought they had it all figured out. They were looking intently for the coming of the Messiah. They were. They were looking intently for the coming of the kingdom of God. But when the Messiah finally showed up, they completely missed it. And they missed it because it didn't fit their preconceived paradigms for what the Messiah was to be like or for what the kingdom was to be like. And not only did they miss the coming of the Messiah, but they crucified him. Certainty is not always a bad thing. There are many things that we need to be certain about. The problem comes is that when we let our certainty turn into pride and our pride into legalism, that then we close ourselves off from who God is and what God is doing in the world. And then we become like the Pharisees who on the outside seem to have it all together, but on the inside have hearts that are really hardened and closed off to the love of God and to the love of neighbor. There was at least one Pharisee for whom was, he was at least open enough to be fascinated by Jesus and open enough to be fascinated by the signs that were pointing to the kingdom, and it drew him to Jesus. You see, Scripture tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. John goes out of his way to tell us that he, Nicodemus came to him by night. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. One is that even though he might have been at least somewhat open to Jesus, he was still, still fearful. He didn't understand Jesus. He definitely didn't want to see, be seen hanging around with Jesus. He was a prominent leader, and it's possible that his reputation could have been tarnished if he was seen hanging with Jesus. That's definitely the standard interpretation. I think that there's a second aspect to this, though, that gets missed, and it goes like this. You see, for us, night is the end of the day. 
right? Everything closes down at night. But in a Jewish mindset and in a biblical mindset, night is the beginning of a new day. Night is the beginning of a new day. The, the formula in Genesis 1 is that there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so I think John is subtly telling us something as he writes this account that, and I think it goes like this, that for Nicodemus, that a new day was beginning. That for Nicodemus, a new day was beginning. He was fascinated enough by Jesus and it drew him to Jesus and it put him in a place where his old categories for thinking about God and about the Messiah and about the kingdom were being stripped away. You see, because he comes to Jesus and Jesus begins to speak to him. And he begins to reveal a new way of thinking and a new way of being. Jesus reveals that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of the world. That the kingdom of God can only be entered into by a new birth through the Holy Spirit, which gives new life. And it starts by believing that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent into the world in love to give life to the world. See, new life comes with the stripping away of old categories, and it acts kind of like a night when you can't really see very clearly, but as you grow into this new life, it's like the sun rising and shedding light on everything, and you begin to see and to walk in this new life. It's why Paul can say, walk in the light as he is in the light. And so for Nicodemus, a new day was dawning because he had put himself in a posture to hear God the Son speak. Moses and Nicodemus could have taken postures that were very common or that are very common in our society, right? Moses could have just kept right on tending his sheep, only focusing on the task that was right in front of him. He could have believed that the extraordinary and the mysterious was not worth his time because it wasn't pragmatic enough for him to be burdened with. He could have believed that it was simply a distraction. Nicodemus could have taken the posture of the other Pharisees. He could have believed that he already had Jesus all figured out, that he already knew everything that God was up to, and that he was certain that he would recognize the Messiah, and that when the Messiah come, came, he would not look like the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. He could have taken that posture. But neither of them did that. Neither of them did that. These guys could have taken postures that closed themselves off to the voice of God, but Moses and Nicodemus, I believe, serve as examples of what it looks like to take a posture that is open to the things of the Lord. And on this Trinity Sunday, what I want to suggest to you is that an open posture is a Trinitarian posture. An open posture is a Trinitarian posture. Because that's one of the great revealed truths of the Trinity, that God is a God who is open and who draws us in. He doesn't keep us at a distance. In fact, no, he unites himself to us and he draws us in. And in drawing us in, we find new life. And it is that life that is actually the very life of the Trinity. When Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prays for those who will believe, and he says this. He prays that, that all who believe that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Do you notice the, the closeness and the intimacy of what he's praying? In Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Peter reminds us that 
that as believers that we have become partakers of the divine nature. And this can only happen because God is Trinity. A Trinitarian God is an open God, and it's only because He is an open God that He can truly be described as a God who is love. Not just that God is loving, but that in His essence is love. See, because if the Trinity, because if God wasn't a Trinity, God could not be love, as love necessarily implies the need of another. The theologian Michael Reeves points out that a single person God, which is basically every other God that's out there, that a single person God can't, in essence, be love because they need something outside of themselves to love. But the God that's revealed in Scripture is love because God is in Trinity, because God is a Trinity. And here's how that works. The Father is eternally loving the Son, and the Son is eternally loving the Father. And it's this love between the Father and the Son that is the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis, following the ancient church father, says this. He says that, the, whole, that the, the love between the Father and the Son is of such intensity that it is its own persona. And it's that love that binds the Trinity together. The ancient fathers throughout the ages have called the Holy Spirit the bond of love because it binds the Father and the Son together, and it also reaches out and binds us to God. Because love of God, the love of God can't be contained. The love of God is not contained. It overflows. See, in love, God's love overflowed and it created the cosmos. Not because it needed to, but because that's what love does. It creates that it creates things in, so that its love can be shared. God does not need you. God loves you. And yet in love, the Son is then sent into this cosmos because it has turned away from this source of love and began loving its own self more than anything else. And yet in love, the Spirit reaches out and gives us a new heart and a new love which draws us back into the life-giving love of God. I think... Our Romans passage that we read a little bit ago describes this perfectly. In Romans 8, starting in verse 14, it says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, co-heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Do you notice the different postures that are being held out here? That those who are in Christ, those who believe that he is the son, are no longer slaves. We no longer have to fear God, at least in the sense of a subject to a harsh taskmaster. But instead, it says that we have been adopted, we have been drawn in, and we have been embraced by a new family that was not ours to begin with. The Spirit draws us in, makes us children of the Father, and makes us co-heirs with the Son. Do you see the Trinity at work here? Drawing us in, making us children. And friends, this morning... I want to suggest that that's the posture that we should always take before the Holy Trinity. The posture of a child, not the posture of a slave. See, a slave takes a posture of fear 
that leads to work. A slave is always working. A slave is always working because the task is all that a slave has. And it's always working for the possibility of pleasing its master, which it can never do. A child, however, takes a much different posture. Now, there's certainly a posture, a posture of respect that children need to take, but there's another posture that children are much better at taking than adults are. And that's a posture of wonder. It's a posture of wonder, fascination, wonder, curiosity. And it's this childlike wonder that causes them to explore. And in exploration, they grow. You see, children instinctively know that they don't have it all figured out. They instinctively know this. Children instinctively, definitely don't focus only on the task that's in front of them. And might I suggest that we as adults might need to relearn the value of that. Friends, we are children of God, and we only become so because God is Trinity. And I think that our lectionary passages that were appointed this morning are pointing us to this, or encouraging us to always take this posture of wonder, because I believe that it's only in that posture that we can grow in our knowledge and in our love of God. And on this Trinity Sunday, let me suggest to you and encourage you that may we always take this posture of childlike wonder before the mystery that is the Holy Trinity. In the name of the Father, and in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen.